You're listening to a podcast of local news from the County of Suffolk in the United Kingdom. This is brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association, a UK registered charity. Hello and welcome to the 1,886th edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk for July the 7th. The editor of this edition is Katrina, the producer is Roger and your readers are David Palmer and Val Fletcher. We should also mention our processing teams who work hard behind the scenes to copy and dispatch this memory stick to you. We will repeat any telephone numbers that are in this edition at the end of the memory stick. And here are the headlines. Alternative pylon plan demanded. Not so slick thieves try to steal used cooking oil. Deliberate dog poisoning in West Suffolk, disgusting and wicked. Poster girl Darcy goes nationwide as part of appeal. Back to headline one. Alternative pylon plan demanded. A motion to Suffolk County Council... SCC for short, calls on it to write to National Grid Electricity Transmission, NGET for short, to restate their opposition and request details of alternative plans. The project would see a, an 180 kilometres network of 50 metre tall, 400k V pylons cutting through the Suffolk and Essex countryside. It has faced wide-scale opposition from residents, a Suffolk MP and groups across Suffolk and Essex. A petition calling for the plans to be shelved with alternatives proposed to place cables under the sea has reached over 21,000 signatures since its launch in May. The motion, which will go before the Council on Thursday, seeks backing to write to NGET asking that they publish clear and detailed information setting out what an offshore centred alternative to their onshore East Anglian Green proposal would entail. It was proposed by Councillor Richard Rout, SCC Cabinet Member for Environment and Public Protection and seconded by Store Valley Conservative Councillor James Finch. If the motion is accepted, Suffolk County Council will be reinstating their opposition to the East Anglia Green proposal. In a letter written to Greg Hans, the Minister of State for Business, Energy and Clean Growth, Councillor Rout, said, The Council absolutely supports ambitions for renewable energy and the Government's commitment to meet the target of net zero by 2150. We recognise the benefits that can come from this project and we continue to work with the government to develop a coordinated offshore transmission. However, the council objects to the proposal for National Grid's East Anglia Green as it stands. I am determined that Suffolk will not suffer unnecessarily as a consequence. We will continue to protect our communities, residents and natural environment. We're demanding that a more collaborative solution is found to manage the different network connection requirements coming into Suffolk and East Anglia and that all network options are fully explored. 
The motion will be considered by SCC at their next meeting today. Not-so-slick thieves try to steal used cooking oil. Hospitality businesses are being warned to watch out for used cooking oil thieves after two restaurants disturbed unknown men attempting to steal the, we- the waste product. Barry St Edmunds Eateries, Gastronome and Casa each interrupted an unauthorised man on their premises as he tried to take their used cooking oil two weeks ago. The businesses already have their own arrangements with contractors for the safe disposal of the waste material. Rick Breckenridge, operations manager at Gastronome, said the theft of used cooking oil was a common happening in central London where he used to work, but he was a little taken aback that it could happen in the market town. He said, you have to wonder to yourself, I don't know where the oil is going and what they're using that waste oil for and where that money's going. It's a little bit sinister. He said there had also been a man in a van and they'd begun transferring that oil into a huge vat before they were stopped. In the case of Kaza, nothing was taken. The restaurants only receive a small amount for their used cooking oil, which is turned into biofuel. But Maria Bordbent of Kaza said it was important waste products from businesses were disposed of professionally and legitimately. She said, We have to follow so many rules and regulations and pay so much to have everything done properly, so it really galls me people are operating illegally. And also, you don't want people under false pretenses in the back areas of your business. She said it had happened a handful of times over the past three years, with the restaurant being caught out on a couple of the occasions. Both Miss Broadbent, chair of the R. Berry St Edmunds Business Improvement District, BID, and Mr Breckenridge, want to make other hospitality businesses aware of the issue. Mark Cordell, chief executive of the BID, also urged businesses to take steps to prevent it happening. Mr Cordell said, The old phrase of where there's muck there's brass appears very apparent here. These two businesses are taking responsible steps to dispose of their waste products and yet someone is trying to come in and steal the oil and presumably either use it themselves or resell it to others as biofuel. With the cost of living crisis and particularly the high cost of fossil fuels, I suppose I shouldn't be surprised that this commodity would be worth stealing, but cleaning it, clearly it is. Kaza has not reported what happened to police, and Mr Breckenridge said he would do so once he'd got the CCTV images. Theft of used cooking oil has been reported across the country, but a spokesperson for Suffolk Police said they were not aware of any reports locally. Suffolk Trading Standards also said they had not had any such reports. Deliberate dog poisoning in West Suffolk, disgusting and wicked. Police are urging dog owners to be cautious after three dogs were deliberately poisoned in West Suffolk. Over the evening of Thursday, June the 24th, three dogs that were roaming free within the grounds of a rural home are believed to have been deliberately poisoned, Suffolk police said. The owner found all three dogs unconscious the next morning and tests have confirmed that they had ingested pentobarbital, an anaesthetic used for sedation and euthanasia in cats and dogs, and only available on prescription. The exact method of transmission is not known, but police suspect the dogs were fed with food laced with the drug. The intentions of the suspects are also unknown, but police believe this is likely to be the actions of would-be thieves who were disturbed. 
Sergeant Brian Carver from the Rural and Wildlife Policing Team at Suffolk Police said, this is a particularly worrying incident. Criminals will go to great lengths to steal other people's property, but this is simply disgusting and wicked. The dogs involved have all made a recovery, but only by early intervention and good fortune. This could easily have resulted in the dogs' deaths, which is something we don't want to see anybody suffer. With that in mind, we'd urge anybody that does allow dogs to wander free at night to reconsider their security arrangements and ensure the dogs are kept safe and secure. Poster Girl Darcy goes ni- nationwide as part of appeal. A five-year-old girl from Stowmarket who survived cancer has become one of the faces of a nationwide poster campaign. Darcy Drury was diagnosed with Wilms's tumour, a type of kidney cancer, at the end of April 2020. Her poster, which will be displayed in 600 shops in the UK this summer, shows her with a Cancer Research UK for Children and Young People Star Award, an honour that recognises the bravery of children in the face of cancer. The charity hopes the poster appeal, which also features other people who've survived cancer, will help to raise more money for research to improve the survival of young people with forms of the disease. Steve Poole, Area Manager for Cancer Research UK Shops in Suffolk, said, As we mark our 20th anniversary, we are reflecting on the huge progress that has been made thanks to the generosity of our supporters. As our new campaign highlights, however, cancer still claims around 500 young lives every year in the UK. Cancer in children and young people is different to cancer in adults, from the types of cancer to the impact of treatment and the long-term side effects survivors often experience, so it needs different, dedicated research, and we're grateful to people across Suffolk for helping to fund this. Darcy went through four surgeries, 36 weeks of chemotherapy, and 10 rounds of radiotherapy over the course of eight months. Her mum, Emily, gave up her job as an accountant to focus on Darcy during her treatment. She said, nothing will ever be back to how it was. We know there are long-term effects and increased risk of further cancers. We're so passionate about the need for treatments that do not have these long-term effects and keen to raise awareness to help more research so that improvements can be made. In the east of England, around 370 under-25s are diagnosed with the disease each year. Visitors to charity shops in the UK can support the campaign by making an in-store donation or picking up a gold ribbon pin badge, the symbol for young people's cancers. Children's cancer survival in the UK has more than doubled since the 1970s when just over a third survived more than 10 years. Today it's around 8 in 10. To help support the campaign and the charity's work, you can donate in store or go to cruk.org slash children and young people. We'll move on now to the general news. A Sudbury man known as the old hippie on a bike is embarking on his third mammoth bike ride to raise money for British Ukrainian aid. Alan Deakins, aged 76, will be starting a 4,000-kilometre ride from his home in Sudbury across Europe and back. He will be visiting four former Nazi Nazi concentration camps to show his respect for the millions of innocent souls who lost their lives there. Alan added, 
Unfortunately today, the horrors of war are once again inflicted upon Europe. But unlike 75 years ago, it is possible to get aid and comfort to the victims of the Ukrainian war. His trip starts on Monday, July the 18th, and he will be setting off with just an old bike he purchased from eBay for £80 and a tent as company. Alan was inspired to start his bike ride missions after he suffered a stroke in 2016. In 2018, he raised £9,000 for the Samaritans by undertaking a trip from St Petersburg, Russia, back to the Samaritans branch in Bury St Edmunds. The ride took 42 days in total and he covered a huge distance of 3,200 kilometres. One year later, he rode what he describes as a short two-week stint through Holland and the western edge of Germany to raise a further £1,200. Alan said, Covid robbed me of two summers of travels, but now I'm returning with my longest journey yet. Alan is hoping to raise £8,000 in donations through his Just Giving page for British Ukrainian Aid, a charity funded entirely by voluntary contributions. He said, British Ukrainian Aid is a unique charity as it is run by volunteers, so 100% of a donation goes directly to Ukraine's innocent civilians caught up in the devastating war. Alan will be updating his old hippie on a bike Facebook and Instagram pages with daily blogs and pictures from his 4,000 kilometre journey. He added, please join me. It will be a trip of poignancy, discovery, fun and the unexpected. And hopefully we will meet wonderful people along the way. Well, I think he's wonderful for doing all that. He's wonderful for doing all that. More news. A midsummer dream for Charity Ball. A, Forn a Fornham St Martin-based charity had a midsummer night's dream come true when its party raised more than £135,000. The Gee Whiz Charity Midsummer Night's Party was held on Friday at Brightwell Hall Farm near Ipswich. Nearly 500 guests helped to raise £137,893 thanks to auction prizes donated by businesses. Gee whiz, ambassadors and friends, as well as a golden ticket draw. Eileen Bellsberg, Gee whiz chief executive, said, Our third Midsummer Night's Party has again surpassed our expectations. I'm truly grateful for the support of all involved. Because of their kindness, we can now fund four much-needed projects and equipment. Funds raised through the party will be used to support children and young adults across Suffolk who are learning disabled or neurodivergent or have a life-limiting illness or cancer, as well as supporting sarcoma cancer research and capital projects. Auctioneer Edward Crichton of Lacey, Scott and Knight led the auction, which had prizes including a fully installed smart garden office, an invitation from Rolls-Royce to attend the Salon Privé 2022, VIP pub in the park tickets, a VIP festival experience at defected Croatia, a sculpture from Sean Brosnan, a private dining experience with Pascal Canve at Maison Bleu, and a VIP JCB factory tour. 
Guests enjoyed entertainment from RPJ band and lead singer Rick Parfit Jr. Sponsors included TRU7 Group, Abbeygate Wealth Management, Chassis Cab DAF, Crazy Horse, Smart Garden Officers, Truck East and Whip Street Motors. Thetford will play a major part in a regional celebration showcasing the legacy of the last royal family of the Punjab after a two-year break. The Festival of East Anglia and Punjab, which starts today, will explore the cultural links between the two regions of Maharaja Dulep Singh and his family, who owned Elden Estate. This year's festival also marks the 75th anniversary of India and Pakistan independence and the partition that divided Punjab into two halves when the once vast kingdom of Dulep Singh was separated between two nations. Indi Sandhu, Essex Cultural Diversity Project Chief Executive and Festival Director said the Festival of East Anglia and Punjab will span across Essex, Suffolk and Norfolk, aiming to bring the communities together to share their cultures, customs and traditions through heritage, culture, food and the arts. Thetford will host the Mila, the festival's finale, on its Riverside Green on July the 10th, as it did for the Norfolk and Punjab Festival in 2019. This time the public will be able to see things such as epica dancing, Sikh martial arts displays, as well as the Jugnu Bhangra group. Internationally renowned Circus Raj will perform at Thetfest on July the 9th and the Ancient House Museum in White Hart Street has an exhibition of Princess Catherine Dulep Singh's an exciting events programme including a number of talks. School's event brings history to life when hundreds of children took part in a parade and afternoon of performances in Bury St Edmunds in a celebratory event to bring history to life. Designed by artist and teacher Louise Gridley, it saw schools from the Bury St Edmunds area get involved in a parade from Charter Square, finishing at the Abbey Gardens, where students took to the stage to share their learning about the town's rich heritage. Onlookers watched local theatre company Magic Floor Productions lead the infamous William Corder to the gallows while students shouted, Hang him! Hang him! Some children wore historical dress and pupils from St Benedict's Catholic School held banners featuring designs based on tiles in St Edmundsbury Cathedral and historical maps. Wednesday's event was the culmination and celebration of students learning about the town's history and was connected to the wider Abbey 1000 events to mark a thousand years since the founding of the Abbey of St Edmund. Mrs Gridley said, It's about bringing history to life for our young people through the performing arts. Children had taken part in cultural visits, including to Moises Hall Museum and the Cathedral, and then they took their learning back to the classroom, which fed into their performance-based pieces at the event. The local CALSA, C-A-L-S-A, Cultural and Arts Leaders in Schools and Academies team, headed by Kate Brown, had developed a range of creative resources to inspire and encourage engagement and participation. Churches joined together on Sunday afternoon for a summer celebration 
and to mark Abbey a thousand in Bury St Edmunds. The fifteen churches together in Bury St Edmunds saw live music and entertainment on stage and a children's show followed by a songs of praise service with hymns and songs chosen and introduced by members of different churches. Sunday's summer celebrations saw church members take along chairs, rugs and picnics to enjoy the event. Heather Corbell, chair of Churches Together, said, It was a happy, very positive event with the usual mix of music and an all-age puppet show to celebrate the fact we all have much more in common than divides us. Thanks to all who came, those who prayed, joined in, sang, chatted and created a wonderful atmosphere. A special thanks to all for the speaking and music contributions, background help and stewarding. There were also talks with organisations Abbey Thousand, Berry Christian Youth, West Suffolk Hospital Chaplaincy, Good News for Everyone and One Man's Life Transformation from Addiction. In addition to the summer celebration, it was the first time 12 large crosses individually decorated by Churches Together churches had been brought together as they were all at the Abbey Gardens event. The crosses have been displayed in their own churches for the past few months as part of a Jubilee Cross Trail. The Jubilee Cross Trail will continue over the coming months with all welcome to visit. A butcher's shop is going to open a burger bar with a Thurston, a Thurston butcher has unveiled plans for a new sandwich, toasty and burger bar. Alastair Angus, 35, who runs Thurston Butchers, and Curtis Lowe, 28, who runs the shop's cookhouse, are taking over O Crumb's sandwich bar on Barton Road. Current owner Sue Dodsworth is moving on, is moving on from the business for health reasons after eight years. Alastair and Curtis plan to rebrand the business and launch it as a new shop called Stacked in the autumn. Until the takeover, the sandwich bar is operating as normal. Curtis joined Thurston Butchers as an apprentice butcher and quickly followed his passion for high-quality homemade food, becoming head of the shop's cookhouse, specialising in homemade pies, sausage rolls and pasties. The shop ran a successful pop-up burger shop uh, during the Covid pandemic and were looking to take the idea further. In lockdown, we diversified our businesses as we lost out on some catering contracts, said Alistair. We established a pop-up burger shop in our cookhouse, our on-site kitchen, and the response was amazing. After lockdown, we decided to come up with a more long-term solution as we were quickly outgrowing our kitchen space. After discussing market stores, burger vans and so on, we settled on wanting to create our dream in a bricks-and-mortar site and the opportunity came up when Sue said she was looking to move on. All pies, sausage rolls and pasties will be made at Stacked. The shop will be open Tuesday to Saturday and will feature a breakfast menu as well as full-time lunchtime offerings, including burgers later in the week. We're going to start off with our basic menu and expand as the business grows and see what people want, said Curtis. I have a few ideas of products which are very popular in New Zealand so I'm excited to bring some new flavours and methods to the shop. The shop will also feature homemade brioche doughnuts with homemade fillings. We've held doughnut Fridays at the butcher's shop since February. Every week we're selling more and more, 
so this is definitely a part of the business, said Curtis. We're both excited by proper, homemade, epic sandwiches and burgers. We've held a few pop-up burger shops at the New Green Centre in Thurston, and this has allowed us to gauge the interest, as well as to get our burger recipes fully trialled. Dragons roamed freely at Westo Anglo-Saxon Village and Country Park at the weekend as a popular event returned. Dragonfest was back after a two-year Covid-related hiatus and it was bigger and better than ever, according to organisers. More than 2,600 people attended the two-day event, making it the most successful yet. Glynis Baxter, West Suffolk Council Heritage Officer, said... After two years off, we really wanted to hit the ground running. We started advertising it quite early, and people were given the option to pre-book at a reduced price, which seemed popular. I think everyone is desperate to get back out and about to events now. We want to keep building the event, so each year there is more for people to do. Westow's Anglo-Saxon village was transformed into a world of dragons, creatures and an unusual characters for the sixth dragon fest holistic hill hosted well-being taster sessions taster sessions taster treatments and traders tippy field boasted bring out your dead productions circus skills with fire flow and axe throwing with into the wilderness the village welcomed valerian dragons Rake the Bubble Dragon, Dragon Heart Drums with Mia the Dragon, a blacksmith and stallholders and traders, while the craft tent offered rojo arts and a mini dig experience. There was a really nice festival atmosphere, said Glynis. We had dragons of different sizes, from tiny ones to what could be full-sized dragons, although of course we don't really know what size a fully grown one would be. We had circus acts where people could have a go themselves. We had storytelling, lots of stalls selling dragon-themed items, face painting, archery, axe throwing, a craft tent, just to mention a few. The event, which was promoted by West Suffolk Council, is set to return in June 2023. A GP who worked in Suffolk for 33 years has published a book sharing his experiences of working as a village doctor. The Tales of a Suffolk GP is written by Andrew Yeager, who worked as a village GP at Bottersdale Health Centre from 1986 to 2019. Andrew said, I hope it's humorous, poignant, and offers an insight into my life, my family's life, and being a GP in Suffolk. I was thinking of finishing as a GP, and wanted to put together something for my family. Once I got going, I ended up really enjoying the writing process. The book takes the form of 37 short stories, and Andrew shared one particularly striking anecdote. In his chapter entitled Love is Priceless, he tells of a woman he visited on a Sunday evening a number of years ago. After conducting the GP appointment, they were chatting about the artwork in her house, and she led him through to see a painting in her bedroom. Andrew recognised it at once, and she revealed that it was painted by famed French artist Pierre-Auguste Renoir. She told Andrew that she was given the painting by a European aristocrat she fell in love with in the Second World War. The man was sadly killed shortly afterwards. She never married, 
and kept the painting as a token of their love for the rest of her life. If it hadn't been for a chance meeting at a leaving event at the end of 2021, the book may have remained on his computer, never to be seen by anyone apart from Andrew's close family and friends. Here Andrew met with an NHS practice manager who owns a publishing company and offered to help him with creating his final publication. Andrew is donating all profits from his book to the Ukraine Red Cross Society. He said it took me around six months to seek everyone's consent to be in the book or alter their identities so they couldn't be identified. Because the stories involve me, my family, my patients and friends, I felt I couldn't profit from something everyone had contributed to. The book will be released in mid-May. Andrew thought he might be able to sell around 100 copies, but he's already sold more than 700. We're moving now to letters. And my first letter is from Roger Spiller, um, Green Ixworth, he writes. As I write this on Sunday, June the 26th, I am reflecting on our river in Ixworth, the Blackbourne, which has ceased to flow for several days, leaving large, deep but isolated puddles in the riverbed. Fish are dying, as are plants and other river life. Why has this happened when water tables are relatively high and temperatures warm but not overly so? This is not just down to one cause, but many, with climate heating behind most of them. Higher temperatures demand more water for people, agriculture and horticulture, while at the same time rainfall is, as predicted, more erratic, with low amounts for most of the year and then downpours with flooding as a consequence. This pattern firstly weakens or kills plants and their hold on the soil, and then the torrential rain washes away the topsoil and blocks water courses. Fresh water is a, is a valuable, indeed priceless, resource on which we all depend and often take for granted. We also depend on the crops grown by farmers who, depending on the nature of the crop and the soil, may need to irrigate. Nature needs a constant supply of water to thrive, to provide us with oxygen and insects which enables farm crops to be pollinated and maintain an equable environment and minimise climate change. We are often reminded of the increasing and more frequent instances of water shortage around the globe with the consequential famines which are often the root cause of civil wars and conflict between countries. International agreements exist to share the water from rivers such as the Nile, Mekong, Danube, Tigris and Euphrates. Just as well that we do not have to do that. Or do we? East Anglia has the lowest rainfall in the UK and is already suffering water stress. Future development will create a real and acute shortage. Anglian Water plans to create two huge reservoirs in the Cambridge stroke Norfolk Fens and the Lincolnshire Fens. At the same time, they will be further reducing their take from the ground to improve the flow in our existing chalk streams. Natural England Chair Tony Juniper recently said that chalk streams like the Lark and Blackbourne are unique natural features and considering that most such rivers in the world are found here in England, 
we have a particular responsibility to ensure that they are in good health. He added, these habitats are subject to a complex range of pressures. However, from pollution arising from road runoff, agriculture and sewage, to low flow resulting from abstraction for public water supply and physical damage to the watercourses. We need better cooperation to enable better water use by farmers, the leisure industry and individuals, anglers and industry, plus the public. The essential users of water for drinking, nature and maintaining our river systems, then comes agriculture and industry, who both also have a responsibility for storing water from rivers when plentiful for use when the rivers are low. Some farmers whose crops require irrigation already take a responsible approach with reservoirs if they are heavy water uses, but by no means all. In future, only crops which require little or no irrigation may have to be grown. We should be demanding that new housing developments use water more efficiently. We all have a responsibility to use less water, but the big commercial users who directly profit from using our water more so. Green Ixworth is clearly concerned by our present local crisis and is working with others to identify solutions and put them to the Environment Agency, which has a regulatory responsibility for what goes in and out of rivers. Due to long-term cuts in government funding, the Environment Agency is now normally unable to investigate complaints because they lack the staff and so are even less likely to prosecute. Perhaps our local MPs can help ensure that government properly fund the agency to enable it to do its job of mitigating climate change and allowing residents to enjoy the scent of wild plants, not the stench of dying fish. Now a letter from Graham Day, who lives in Stowmarket, um, talking about full steam ahead at the Midi. On a superbly sunny Sunday, we took the opportunity to visit the Mid-Suffolk-like railway, taking part in the classic car display with friends from East Anglian Practical Classics. As part of the display, a restored Strada car, last seen at the Suffolk show and originally produced in Saxmundham, was included. The 70th anniversary of the closure of the original railway on July 26, 1952, is now fast approaching, as is the 30th anniversary of the opening of the museum. A lot has happened over the intervening years. From humble beginnings, the museum has now developed into a fascinating reconstruction of a long-lost line which was originally intended to run principally between Hawley and Halesworth. There was also a spur line to Westerfield. However, not all the original aspirations were met. Careful progress over 30 years has led to excellent visitor facilities, including a shop, cafe and a pub. On this day, a small train of restored coaches was hauled by a 123-year-old steam locomotive along the track from Brockford Station to Dovebrook. Although it's a short journey, it gives an excellent impression of what travel in rural Suffolk would have been like. Work is underway to extend the line to Aspel Holt. The ballast is laid down and rails are being laid and will be completed once more sponsorship for sleepers is received. Hopefully this will be very soon. 
For the first time, I also noticed that guided tours for visitors were being offered. This museum has patiently, carefully and unobtrusively worked over many years to create a tremendously authentic and interesting visitor experience, and it works. We had a thoroughly enjoyable and interesting time. I hope it continues to go from strength to strength and achieves the highest possible accolades. The Mid-Suffolk Light Railway is now something of which Suffolk can be very proud. It is middying along very well indeed. Sue Perry writes from Newmarket. We were assured by Brexiteers that there would be £350 million per week available to build more hospitals once we left the EU. You might ask yourself what has happened to that money, given the massive fundraising effort needed to get the new Cambridge Children's Hospital off the ground. West Suffolk MP Matt Hancock will be doing his bit by spending his holidays undertaking a sponsored climb of Mont Blanc. Well done to him for taking on such an arduous challenge. But why is the government, of which he is a part, not prepared to fund the project properly? The £100 million that Mr Hancock signed off for it before he was forced to resign as Health Secretary sounds like a lot of money, but it falls well short of the amount actually needed. You might remember the start of the Covid pandemic when millions of pounds of public money was diverted into the private sector, which then largely failed to deliver the services and equipment it had been contracted to provide. The need for the new hospital is undisputed. East Anglia is the only region in England that does not have a specialist children's hospital. Such an important NHS development should not be dependent on charity. Now a letter from Margaret Charlesworth, who lives in Bury St Edmunds, and she's complaining that there's been no official response to Peter's letter. So having read Peter Fuller's letter in the Bury Free Press on 13th of May, I'm wondering whether there has been any acknowledgement yet of the said letter by any West Suffolk or County Council councillors and or officers. As far as I'm aware, there's been none. I knew Peter very well when I was a councillor, and he was the principal planning officer for the then St Edmundsbury Borough Council. He and his colleagues recognised the qualities of the town and its heritage, and I remember did their utmost to protect the conservation areas and everything else which makes our town what it is. People who live here have often said, aren't we lucky to live in Bury St Edmunds? Likewise, visitors say, what a lovely town. A lot of what has been achieved in the past to preserve and enhance the appearance of the town during times of considerable change is now falling by the wayside. If we let standards slip, it will be now impossible to bring them back up again. Peter must be getting extremely despondent to see everything that he and his colleagues championed is being allowed to deteriorate. Every one of his bullets points is valid and needs to be given serious attention. I could make this letter a lot longer, giving many examples, but first I would really like it if someone has the courtesy to reply publicly to genuine concerns about the decline in what the town looks like and indicate that something will be done about the sorry situation into which we have drifted. Going back to some more news now. Green King has pledged to create more local career opportunities after its research found that the majority of young people in the region believe hospitality only provides short-term jobs. 
A report published by the pub chain mm. revealed that almost two-thirds, that's 63%, of young people in the east of England believed that a job within the hospitality sector did not offer a long-term promising career. Keen to attract people into the industry, Green King has stated it will create 5,000 new apprenticeship roles by 2025 and provide supported internships to help young people into the sector. The hospitality industry in Norfolk and Suffolk has struggled to recruit staff after a high number of workers left during the pandemic. The industry has a reputation for providing low-paid jobs that require employees to work on sociable hours, which some argue could be putting people off applying for jobs. To help boost the number of people working within hospitality, Green King is also urging the government and businesses within the industry to work together to encourage candidates to apply for roles. This includes calls for the government and the National Career Service to do more to promote hospitality as a skilled profession, as well as to reform the apprenticeship levy, including to allow businesses to use any unspent levy funds more flexibly. Nick McKenzie, CEO of Green King, said, Pubs have always been about people, and I've witnessed the way a job in a pub can completely change a person's life and become a lifelong successful career. That's why I'm proud that Green King is making these commitments to provide people from all backgrounds access to meaningful, rewarding careers in their local communities. Pubs have so much to offer both for those looking for careers and those in the local community. If we are to fully capitalise on this potential, government and wider industry must pull together to promote careers in hospitality and empower businesses to offer even more training and development opportunities. A little bit of news in brief. Um, Village Church helps to preserve piece of history. A special ceremony took place over the weekend to preserve a piece of an organisation's history. The Royal British Legion, Horringer Branch, had its standard laid up in the village's St Leonard's Church. The ceremony held a particular significance as the branch was forced to close three years ago because only one member remained. Brian Thaxter, the remaining member, said it means a lot to residents to have the standard. The next item is about a sculpture designed for the Abbey Thousand Celebrations. These should have taken place in 2020, but were postponed until this year because of the pandemic. The sculpture is on a plinth in the Abbey ruins and changes every so often, so this is the first sculpture I have described. It is called Burying Bloom's Crowning Glory, which is inspired by the town signage, Bury St Edmunds, a jewel in the crown. The crown is made from recycled material and features 500 jewels. Each jewel has been made from the bottom of a single-use plastic bottle and has been decorated by local children, residents of care homes, the gatehouse community well-being and some beavers who are the group before cubs. The jewels are very colourful and now when they are put together in the shape of a crown they look spectacular particularly from a distance. 
The top of the crown is made from old tennis rackets, green king bottle tops, chicken wire, tin cans and abandoned heating pipes. You can really imagine this crown being worn by a king. Around the plinth are mosaics designed by schoolchildren and they tell the story of St Edmund. The project has been managed by the Crafty Foxes. And a short item about a high street retailer being back in town as the shop reopens. A well-known retailer has returned to Bury St Edmunds town centre following its closure in 2020. The Edinburgh Woollen Mill in Buttermarket reopened its doors to customers on Friday before enjoying a busy weekend of trading. This week, a new staff member said customers had given the shop a very warm welcome on its first weekend back. This is a history project in Hargrave. The ancient West Suffolk village of Hargrave has completed the final phase of its first history project in a thousand years, Hargrave Heritage, with the opening of a permanent exhibition at the parish church of St Edmund. Past and present residents recently admired the displays at a preview event when about half of the village's population of 300 attended. The exhibition offers snapshots of key moments in the village history and displays include QR codes to enable visitors to link in situ through their mobile, mobile phones to the full Heritage Archive on the Hargrave Heritage website. The construction and population of the website was the first phase of this community-based archive opening in November 2020 and built so far on almost 200 articles from past and present residents, collecting family trees, memories, photos and other mementos. These personal reflections are supplemented with published historical records. Weekly hits on the website have grown this year to around 200. Contributions have arrived from the United States, Australia and New Zealand, demonstrating the extensive outreach of the project's technology. The Permanent Heritage Exhibition and the Church of St Edmund are open for visitors all week. Plans have been submitted for nine new homes on land described as one of the few remaining undeveloped sites within walking distance of Bury St Edmund's town centre. Brickfield Homes East Anglia Limited has lodged these proposals with West Suffolk Council for a site behind a row of homes in Fornham Road, close to the A14. Access to the site would be from Woodford Gardens. In documents submitted to the Council on behalf of the developer, architects Brown and Scarlett said the site was one of the few remaining undeveloped sites within easy walking distance of the town centre and railway station, and is also well serviced by public transport. The homes would comprise four three-bed and two-bed houses, along with four two-bed bungalows and a single-bed home to provide homes for an ageing population in a central location. The plans would include a pedestrian link to the existing footpath network and the footbridge at the end of Northgate Avenue. Model aircraft owners performed eye-catching aerial displays as they battled it out in a competition. Fourteen pilots took part in a round of the British Model Flying Association's GB National League competition at the Berry Model Flying Club site at Nettishall 
Airfield on Saturday, June the 18th. All pilots who were from across East Anglia and further afield flew three rounds. Three members of the Berry MFC competed. One, Mike Reader, placed second in the Masters competition, while the other two, Mark Allen and Peter Jenkins, placed fourth and eighth respectively in the FAI preliminary class. All pilots were flying models powered by electric motors, although a few still use internal combustion motors to power their aircraft. The aircraft is limited to a maximum dimension of 2 metres for both fuselage length and wingspan and a maximum weight of 5 kilogram. There were two judges responsible for judging the manoeuvres against the following four criteria. Size of manoeuvre, accuracy of manoeuvre, positioning of manoeuvre and constant flight speed. In the three-round competition, the best two scores determined the pilot's position. In the UK, the British Model Flying Association, BMFA for short, is responsible for administering the sport of model aircraft aerobatics. Through its specialist body, the GB Radio Control Aerobatics Association, it runs a national competition league that model pilots enter in order to develop their skills to take part in the national team selection process to represent GB at continental and world championships. Now we have an opinion piece from Lee Andrews Pierce, and he's saying action will be taken over ASB, that's antisocial behaviour, and he's the community engagement officer for Beris and Edmonds. Hello, I hope you're all enjoying the summer sunshine we've had in recent weeks. One aspect that this warm weather can, unfortunately, un encourage is anti-social behaviour, ASB. We fully appreciate the distress this can have and people should rest assured that where necessary, robust action will be taken when we need to. ASB is any behaviour that's capable of causing nuisance and annoyance, is likely to cause harassment, alarm or distress, create significant and persistent problems in a neighbourhood and leaves communities intimidated. Examples of such behaviour would include noise, vehicle ASB and harassment. In some circumstances, ASB will be a criminal offence, such as criminal damage from graffiti or arson from setting dustbins on fire. Incidents of ASB may be best resolved through a multi-agency response as many organisations can play a key role in tackling it in providing a suitable resolution. Each scenario needs to have a tailored response, which can lead to a variety of outcomes, which can include community protection notices and criminal behaviour orders that can be imposed on perpetrators. The FORCE website, www.suffolkpolice.uk slash contact us, has a dedicated page for the reporting of such issues. The complaint is then flagged to the appropriate local safe, safer neighbourhood team and assigned to an officer to progress and liaise with our partners. The police are obliged to report back what action we have taken, as would be the case for all crime reports. West Suffolk Council also has an ASB reporting mechanism, so just go to its website, www.westsuffolk.com gov.uk and search for online reporting form.
If you're a social housing tenant, you can report ASB to your housing officer. What is really crucial is that you do report it and don't just accept it. We have lots of approaches in our toolkit to deal with perpetrators, but we do need to know about it to begin to address the issue. Elsewhere, one important landmark in policing this month is the 20th anniversary of Police Community Support Officers, the PSCOs, being introduced uh, nationally. Over the past two decades, PCSOs have provided a vital link to our community. They deter antisocial behaviour, provide reassurance, gather intelligence and work with businesses, schools and statutory partners to keep communities safe. I know local people in the Bury St Edmunds area welcome their visibility, their in-depth knowledge of local areas and their approachability. Among their roles, they provide high visibility patrols for public reassurance and reducing fear of crime and antisocial behaviour. They also work with communities to understand and address local needs and concerns. They build working relationships with partner agencies to help identify solutions to prevent crime by tackling the root causes and they also help identify and reduce community issues, tensions and fears through a coordinated intervention process. So they are a valuable member of the whole Suffolk policing family and from a personal point of view they are very beneficial to me in supporting my community engagement role. If you want to know which PCSOs work in your area just go to the Your Area section of the Suffolk Police website or just drop me an email and I will let you know. Camille Berryman is a journalist on the Berry Free Press and she writes fairly regularly on there and it's she calls her column a personal view and she's been writing this for a number of years now and she writes about her family and if you've... Um, know about Camille Berryman, you'll know that she has one daughter named Clara and who has now reached five. And this is her personal view for this week. As Clara nears the end of her, her reception year at school, I have come to wish I could be a fly on the wall to listen in on classroom conversations between five-year-olds. This week, during another of our enlightening bedtime chats, she told me, Lenny says his mum is really chubby. What is chubby? I hasten to add all names have been changed for identity protection purposes and to stop me being lynched at the school gate. Clara and I then had a discussion about what chubby meant. While I said I was sure Lenny's mum would be thrilled to know he had described her thus. Well, Milo says his mum is fat. Lulu says her mum has granny hair and Johnny says his mum is a weirdo, added Clara. Uh, what do you say about me? I asked Clara with blood pressure through the roof as I awaited her response. Without missing a beat, she replied that you're slim and pretty and squishy. Phew, I got off lightly there, although note to self must work harder on toning those squishy bits. But it got me thinking about what these youngsters might possibly be saying about their parents and home life to the teachers and teaching assistants at school. Frankly, I dread to think as they have no filter at this age and say whatever comes to mind. 
It reminded me of the time Clara's nursery informed me she had confidently assured them Daddy fixes aeroplanes at Argus. He has to work at Argus to buy a house and Star Wars socks. Clara has since worked out that Daddy does not, in fact, fix planes at Argus, but in the Air Force. However, she was spot on when it came to his reasons for working. Knowing that what we say at home could well be repeated elsewhere is something I need to constantly remind my husband. For example, as I head off to my Slimming World weigh-in every Saturday morning, husband David says, Mummy's off to Fat Club now. I had no problem with the term Fat Club. That is, until the Saturday I had to take Clara with me to Slimming Group for childcare reasons. While in the queue to weigh, she spotted a member of staff from her school also waiting. After saying her hellos to the woman in question, Clara stage whispered to me, I'm going to tell everyone at school I've seen Christine at Fat Club. When once an impending birthday was a reason to plan celebrations, now I seem to spend the run-up to my big day debating what cakes to buy for the office. This year I have decided to eschew tradition. It's a radical concept, but there will be no cakes in the newsroom on July the 4th, as instead I am buying sweets. I'm not really a cake person, but I love sweets hence the need for Slimming World. So, as I've reached middle, reached middle age, I've decided office treats I will enjoy too are the order of the day. Penny sweets induced coma, here I come. Well, we're coming to the end of this edition of St Edmundsbury News Talk. If you have any comments about the memory stick or difficulty playing it, please use the phone number you've been given or put a note in the pouch when you return the memory stick to us. We'd like to acknowledge our appreciation to the Berry Free Press, East Anglian Daily Times, Haverhill Echo and Newmarket Journal, from whose pages most of our items have been taken. Well, Newsweek news uh, Talk, sorry, we'll be <laughs> back again next week. So until then, from Val and David and Katrina and Roger, it's uh, goodbye. 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 listening to a podcast brought to you by the St. Edmundsbury News Talk Association. You can view more information about News Talk on our website at www.stedmundsburynewstalk.org.uk. The music in this podcast was provided under Creative Commons license by Scott Holmes. This podcast was created entirely by volunteers in our Bury St. Edmunds studio. 